Thanks for joining us online for today's message from our Sunday morning service, where we are learning how to make disciples who love God, love others, and serve the world. We pray that you are encouraged and challenged. For more information about Wilmot Center Missionary Church, go to wcmc.ca. Now prepare your hearts for what God wants to speak to you today. If you've been around Wilmot the last few months, you've probably noticed we've been talking a lot about community and a lot about relationships. It's a big part of our renewed vision for the church. You've heard about the relaunch of our life groups. You heard this morning we've got 16 groups and five coaches. And that our goal, our stated goal, is that we want to see at least 50% of our adult attenders involved in the life group this year. And I hope God's working in you to call you toward that. We firmly believe that God is drawing us back into deeper relationship with each other as we learn to follow him together. And that's what our series, Better Together, is all about. Um, Now, some of you might be wondering who I am. Who is this guy? And if you haven't been here before, my name is Mark Dom, and I'm part of the leadership team here at Walmart. I'm a high school music teacher at Waterloo, Oxford. And I also have the pleasure of actually teaching some, or if not most, of the fantastic youth that you see on the platform this morning. Um, And as amazing it is to see them perform at school, and they are amazing, they're really quite good. It's even more incredible to see them using your gifts to lead us into worship here at Walmart. I hope you know that. Yeah. Now, you can look for them to be part of our worship services on a regular basis. In fact, any month that has five Sundays, they'll be there on that fifth Sunday. So pray for them. Pray for them as they lead downstairs. They're cultivating a heart of worship in our children, in our youth. And I believe, I believe God's going to take his places because of the ministry of those youth. I believe he's the, they're the next generation that he's raising up for that. So along with the teacher, I'm also a dad. My wife Leanne and I are raising three boys with two currently in high school and one in college. And obviously we're at the stage of life when parenting is different than it used to be. Uh, the minivan and the diaper bags are gone. There's no more strollers, there's no car seats, and more importantly, there's no cringe-inducing kids' music playing in the car. Those days are done for us, and they've all slipped into the recesses of my memory, but now we've got different challenges. I still remember a few things, though. I remember just how much time it used to take to get the boys ready to go anywhere or to do anything. Getting them changed or dressed, fed, cleaned, down for a nap, or even entertained all required energy. And some of you are thinking, that was my life this morning. But it was our energy as parents because they were totally dependent on us. Totally dependent. For everything. Everything. And as a parent with young kids, you learn and you long for the day when these little ones can start to finally do some of these things on their own. And if you're like me, you may have even resorted to using propaganda to, in their bedtime reading selections to help elicit the spirit of independence and a desire to do things on their own. Remember the book, I Can Do It Myself? Maybe it's up here, you can see it. it coming up somewhere? Well, you'll see it in a second. <laughs> so maybe I wasn't the only one that tried this tactic. Our kids got a little older, they developed some skills, and finally, joyously, there comes the day when they not only put their shoes on themselves, but they actually get them on the right feet. Very good. Outwardly, you're proud of their newfound independence, but inwardly, secretly, it's one less thing on your daily to-do list, and you are almost free. As we get older, we get more and more independent, and we take I can do it myself to a whole new level. We live in a society that values self-made men, 
Self-motivation, self-improvement, self-fulfillment, self-esteem. I can do it myself is everywhere. And a lot of us end up fully embracing that value. But is it true? Is it scriptural? Is that really how God intended us to live? Today we're going to talk about how others can actually bring about healing in your life. Many of us know this to be true medically. Think about um, babies that are born prematurely. They crave cuddling. They need to be held. They need to be held to grow and to thrive. And if you take that away from them, sometimes babies just don't develop. Think about people who are sick. Occasionally, they'll have family that show up, and suddenly, out of the blue, they get better in the company of their loved ones. We've heard stories like this. Maybe you've been one of those who've, who've uh, seen this in your own life. You're in the hospital, but right after you have a steady stream of visitors, suddenly you're encouraged, and you just start to feel better. There's something about the power of community that can actually help bring about healing. And we know that to be true medically speaking, but what about spiritually? And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Now, most of us know another sickness that we struggle with, and these are the sicknesses of guilt, shame, regret, loss, and many more. And these can lead to fear, anxiety, depression, anger, and in the worst cases, they might even lead to suicidal thoughts or even an attempt. These things aren't pretty, and they certainly aren't what we want to put out there for everyone to see. These are, this is the hidden side of each of us, and if left unchecked, it makes us spiritually sick and keeps us from experiencing all that God has for us. And this is where I can do it myself often falls short and causes many to end up suffering alone and spinning downward. So why is it that many of us don't allow others to help? When we know, when we know that community can help, why don't we let them help? Why do we cling to the belief that I can do it myself, even while we know it's not true, and even while we know we're hurting? The answer is, we're afraid of being found out. I want you to think about a time in your life, maybe when you're a kid, it's probably easier to think that way, when you disobeyed your parents in some way. It's kind of awkward because my parents are actually right here, so... Maybe you broke something, or maybe your sister broke something. By the way, she's got tons of energy, eh? Wow, awesome. Maybe you broke something you shouldn't have played with. Maybe you lied. That's the big one in our house. I remember lots of those. Maybe you went somewhere you weren't supposed to go. And our tendency when we disobey like that is to brush it aside, to try and hide it, cover it up. And do you remember what it felt like on on the other side of that lie? We hide, we worry, we fear we'll be found out. Our our pulse quickens when they come in the room. Remember the guilt, the uneasiness, the fear you felt every time your parents came in the room or suddenly asked you a question, even if it had nothing to do with it. It interrupted our relationship with our parents, got in the way, because we knew there would be consequences, and we did everything we could to avoid being found out. Now, before you dismiss that as something you did as a kid, as adults, we do the very same thing. But this time, instead of using terms like disobedience or even temptation, we make excuses like this. We say, well, I just have a weakness for that. Or, oh, that's just my guilty pleasure. The problem is, weaknesses turn into habits. And guilty pleasures can sometimes turn into addictions. What happens in Vegas doesn't always stay in Vegas. And what happens on the business trip always comes home with us. These decisions impact our relationships, they cause us extreme guilt, and more often than not, they cause us to try to hide from each other, from God. More times than not, when we ignore trouble and we try to hide it, it instead it finds us and sticks to us. 
I want you to think of the story of Adam and Eve in the garden in, in Genesis 2 and 3. They lived in complete peace and intimacy with each other and with God, yet after they sinned, what'd they do? They hid. They hid. They hid, them, they hid their bodies from each other, and they hid themselves from God. Now think about that. How could one even try to hide from God? But they tried, and so do we. The last thing we want to do when we give in to temptation is to talk about it. And so our impulse is to resist community, to resist people around us. We resist being real. Talking about our weaknesses with other people is hard. It goes against our independent and prideful nature, and it makes us hide. We want to look good in front of each other, like we have it all together. And some of you came into church like that today. No one wants to admit that they secretly struggle with lust or envy. No one wants to tell another person that they feel hopeless, that they're afraid. So we keep quiet. And then when we are faced with group settings where someone gets vulnerable all of a sudden, we cover up. And then what we do is we admit things that still somehow manage to make us look good. Like, um, I've got to stop working so much. Or I overwork. We reveal only those temptations in our life that are socially acceptable, or at least acceptable to the people in front of us. And in the end, most of our relationships and groups become so exhausting as we try to keep struggles concealed while propping up our acts of goodness. Have you felt like that before? Where it actually just takes work to get together with people because you have to hide all the things that are going on in your life. The only thing worse than the thought of confessing temptation would be to actually reveal that we've given into it. No one wants to share how they really did act on their anger and let their neighbor have it with a string of insults. Nobody wants to tell anyone they've been secretly defrauding their customers and their business. Why would you bring it up? No one will understand. Or worse, they might even judge me. So we conclude, we say, I'll just fix it on my own, and here's the thing. One day I'll share my story of how I overcame it all. After all, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But what if Christ wants to strengthen us using others? I want you to think about there's a tale we read back in, in high school. It was by Edgar Allan Poe. It's called The Telltale Heart. And in that story, we read of a man who murdered his friend only to bury him beneath the house. And the guilt he felt began to manifest itself in the sound of a beating heart coming from under the floor of his house. Is he still alive? Could his heart really be that loud? Could others hear this? Of course not, but the secret he kept was a noise that could not be drowned out with the lie in the life he tried to live. He eventually turned himself in at the end of the story to stop the madness. Now, again, that's just a story, but it points out something really important, and this is what I want you to remember. Our secrets make us sick. Our secrets make us sick. Now, Scripture seems to back this up. In Proverbs 11, verse 5, it says this. It says, The godly are directed by honesty... The wicked fall beneath the load of their sin. The wicked fall beneath the load of sin. So there's a picture for you. Proverbs 28 verse 13 says, People who conceal their sins will not prosper. But if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. You conceal your sin, you will not prosper. The Bible says that. So what do we do with this? Remember that our secrets make us sick. So how do we ensure that temptation and sin don't lead to a secret life? Now, the brother of Jesus seemed to have a take on this. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to turn to the book of James near the end of the New Testament. I'll give you a second to take a look. You're going to go to James chapter 5. 
Now, James was one of the contributors of the Bible, but he was not part of the disciples because he was the brother of Jesus. And yet, despite being Jesus' brother, he was a non-believer in Jesus until after the resurrection. Now, before you judge him, honestly, that makes a lot of sense to me. It would, it would literally take my resurrection from the dead for my sister to believe um, that her brother was the son of God. And even then, probably not. But James comes to faith after the resurrection event, and he spends the rest of his life telling people that his brother was indeed the Messiah. Now, as great as that sounds, and obviously James is a hero of the faith, I want you to think for a second about the guilt that he must have felt afterwards. This is what he would say. He'd say, all those years I doubted, all those times I thought he was literally crazy, all those weaknesses and temptations and sin I carried around myself, hoping that the blood of bulls and goats would make me right with God. And all the while, God himself was sharing a room with me. How could I have missed it? What do I do now? That's what James would feel like. And yet, James writes this letter that we have here in the New Testament to a group of Jesus followers telling them how to endure suffering and persecution, as well as how to live in unity with each other. And some of our most quoted material from Christianity is found in this letter. So you're going to look at James uh, chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. James chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Now I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. It starts off like this. It said, are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. I want to stop there for a second, because this part we know. We're a praying church. And if you've been here for any length of time, you know that you've seen those things at work when we come together, and a big part of what we believe. We're a church that believes God heals. We're a church that follows these instructions. And we seek God in faith for healing and for the forgiveness of sins. And that won't change. But often, we stop after those three verses. We miss the next part. And that's what I want to draw your attention to. So let's read on. This is verse 16. It says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Now, this is a fantastic passage, and it's obvious that James is doing his best to instruct a group of people that really needed hope, and they really needed direction. They were a persecuted church. But did you catch the last verse, verse 16? Toward the end of it, he gives us some shocking advice that we may have glossed over. We may have missed it. Confess your sins to each other. And I've underlined it in my notes. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now, if you've been in church for any length of time, I can almost guarantee that this is probably the part of the passage that you wish, that you wish I wasn't going to talk about. Confess your sins to each other. If you're anything like me, there's probably something in you that wants to push back on that, find a loophole and say something like this. What about, can I just confess my sins to Jesus? You might even know a verse or two, like, 1 John 1, nine that says, For if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us all sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. And that's absolutely true. When we confess our sins to Jesus, he does completely forgive us our sin. But if you ever noticed in that verse, it doesn't say who we're supposed to confess to. Maybe there's something in James' instruction that we should also consider. 
And here's the truth. The truth is confessing our faults and our shortcomings to another person is hard because it makes us vulnerable. It lifts the mask. It pushes past the shiny Instagram life we carefully seek to build for ourselves and lets another person see what's really happening inside. Even when it isn't pretty, it's difficult to do. It's costly. And according to James, it's that willingness to risk with another person that can actually lead to your inner healing. And again, if you're really honest with yourself, I think deep down you know that he's right. I think you know that James is right. I think one of the things James is talking about is the kind of soul sickness that leads to a cycle of confession to God, then reinfection by our old habits as we fall back into our similar patterns of selfishness and disobedience. Many of you know what I'm talking about. Many of you have experienced that cycle. Maybe it's rage for you. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's lust. It's worry. Maybe it's overeating. Maybe it's overspending. We just can't shake it. We feel like we've confessed the same thing to God countless times to the point that we feel like we're almost unable to go to God anymore because of the number of times we've been there. In fact, every time the call to confess comes, you feel so ravaged by that, so unworthy that it's it's difficult to even receive it. Our secrets make us sick. And it's not that God hasn't forgiven us each time, but our old habits, our ways of thinking, pull us back in again and again and again. And this is what James is talking about. He's saying to us, our secrets have made us sick. I want to give you three things today that confession to another person provides for us to help to heal. Three things that you can hold on to. The number one, first one is this. Confession limits the power of the accuser. Confession limits the power of the accuser. In Revelation 12.10 it says that the accuser of our brothers and sisters accuses them before God day and night. And one of the biggest tricks of the enemy is to tell you that those around you would never accept you if they knew what you were really like. He says that to you. In fact, he's saying that to you, some of you right now, and I pray against that in Jesus' name. He does everything in his power to remind you of your weakness and to shame you into only partially revealing yourself to others and keeping them at a safe distance. When we confess our shortcomings with someone else, we finally, finally, and completely take that card away from the enemy. He can't threaten to expose our secret if the secret has already been brought into the light. And suddenly we have the ability to fight back against the enemy's lie And to break the cycle of shame, regret, and sin again. Confession limits the power of the accuser. Number two, confession also helps us heal because confession removes obstacles from our relationships. Confession removes obstacles from our relationships. Imagine that I invited you over to your house. I want you to think about this for a second. Yet when I met you at the door, instead of inviting you in, I simply closed the door behind me and stepped out onto the porch. Obviously, you and I could still talk, and we could get to know each other, but deep inside, you're probably wondering why I didn't invite you inside, right? Admit it. You'd be thinking that. That'd be kind of weird. You'd probably not want to know what I was hiding. Now, if you were a good friend, you might be okay with that the first time. You might give me the benefit of the doubt. You might think I was having a bad day, or maybe my my house was a mess, or my kids were acting up. Who knows? But if it happened again and again and again, eventually you'd probably get tired of standing on the porch with me and you simply wouldn't come over the next time. Our secrets make us sick and they make us hard to know and they make us hard to love. They keep us from building deep, authentic relationships. 
Psalm 38 verse 11 says this, My friends and companions avoid me because of my wounds. My neighbors stay far away. When we confess to each other, we open the door and we invite people into our lives. And suddenly that obstacle of the closed door has been removed and our relationship can grow. The final thing that confession does to help us heal is probably the most important element. Confession creates accountability and support. I'm not sure if it's a man thing, so there's a little bit of a confession here. It might be a pride thing, it might be a lazy thing, it might be a fear thing, but I'm going to tell you something. I hate going to the doctor. I make up tons and tons of excuses why I shouldn't go. And my wife will tell you this is true. My mom will tell you this is true. I hate going to the doctor. I've got great excuses. Maybe you recognize these. Maybe this one. Somebody needs to see the doctor more than me. So the altruistic one. Someone needs him worse. How about this one? What if I get to the doctor and he tells me that I'm not sick? I hate that idea. What about this one? I don't want to waste the doctor's time. He's a busy guy. Or this one. Whatever I have will go away on its own. Again, you probably recognize a few of them. Believe me, I have no lack of excuses, and I have to be in pretty rough shape with no other options, and I mean no other options before I'll go. When I finally go to the doctor, I reluctantly share my symptoms. He examines me, and then he prescribes a course of action to help me get better. He then says he wants to see me again in a few days, which I didn't want to do, but I do it anyways, to ensure that I'm getting better and to see if our plan of action needs to be changed. Now, That's kind of what it's like when we confess to one another. We admit we're sick to another person, and we allow them into our plan for health. They check in on us as we heal, and they help us to readjust when things might not be improving. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 says this, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another And all the more as you see the day approaching. Confession creates accountability and creates support. Now, you have to understand something. When I'm speaking to you today, I'm speaking to myself as well. Because this is an area that God has really been challenging me about over the last few months. I like to look good in front of people. I like people to think I have things together. It's certainly a weakness of mine. In some ways, it feels a little bit like God has a sense of humor and that he put this topic in front of me today and they asked me to share it with you. He knows that this is part of my accountability, that speaking to you is part of, of my getting better at this, that if I preach about it, it just can't remain a theory for me either. It's got to be lived out. It's got to be experienced day after day. And here's what I think he's calling us to do in the most practical terms I can think of. So I want to give you three takeaways, okay, three things that you can apply this week that you can start on as the Lord gives you uh, understanding in this area. Number one, the first thing is to find your few. Find your few. And what I mean by that is this kind of honesty and accountability that we're talking about is not appropriate for those who hardly know you. Okay? It would be irresponsible for you to share the deepest, darkest things with anybody that you run into, a stranger. They need to know your context. They need to walk with you. It's not helpful to share with someone that can't commit to walking with you to see things through. Okay, it's like going to the walk-in clinic and never seeing that doctor again. If that's the only thing you do, that's not helpful. Find your few. God will show them to you if you ask him. Number two, the second thing is the whole truth. 
the whole truth. Those of us who have been in church before know that occasionally we get stuck in a situation, get sort of in a prayer time, and we suddenly get in a place where the topic of confession comes up, and suddenly we get real selective about what we share and who we share it with. We look for people to share with that might empathize with our situation because we know they've gone through something similar. Or you might share socially acceptable sins that allow you to participate in confession without jeopardizing your image. And I think you know what I mean. It's just like being at a job interview where we admit that our biggest weakness, because they will ask that, what's, what's your biggest weakness as an employee? And you'll say, my biggest weakness is overworking. Because really, we know that's what they want to hear. They want an employee that's going to be there and and that they can burn the candle at both ends. They want that. Um, Because we know that that confession keeps the veneer intact. Now, if you're serious about getting spiritually healthy, you need to find your few, and you need to give them the whole truth for real authenticity. Now, that might take place over time, right? You may have to earn trust and develop that, but find your few and give them the whole truth. Number three, last one, stay regular. Before you go there, <laughs> stay regular. I'm not talking about the awkward TV ads that promise good digestive health. I'm talking about the practice of maintaining regular contact with those that are looking out for you. It's so much easier to keep short accounts with those we're accountable to when the time is shorter between the accounts. Let's say that again. It's so much easier to keep short accounts with those we're accountable to when the time is shorter between the accounts. Bit of a tongue twister. Don't wait until you're in trouble to confess. Regular checkups lead to earlier detection of trouble spots. It's true in our medical life. It's true in our spiritual life. So here's your review. Good teachers review. Find your few. Make sure they're trusted by you. They're pointed out to you by God. Number two, give them the whole truth. Maybe if it takes a little while, but be committed to the whole truth. Number three, stay regular. So what do I want you to do with it? Why would I mention confession and accountability? Why would I bring all this up when I'm trying to convince you to be part of a life group? Why would I suddenly put something as scary as this in front of you when I'm asking some of you to take a first step of actually getting to know a group of people? Here's why. I'm sharing it today because I think this is one area that's held a lot of you back, a lot of us back, from growing. It's kept us stuck in a never-ending cycle of sin and regret, and it's kept our relationships shallow. It's kept our relationships distant. I'm sharing it today because I believe God wants to do something incredible with you, with our church, to reach unchurched people. But I also believe that God wants us to grow deeper with each other, even as we're growing closer to him. And we're about to reach out to Wilmot. This is the perfect time to get our house in order. This is the time to stop playing church and put our best face on lives that aren't quite what they should be. Our secrets make us sick. They keep us from all that God wants for us. But we know confession limits the power of the accuser. Confession removes obstacles from our relationships. And confession creates accountability and support. Be honest with God. Find your few. Do life with authenticity and see what God can do in you and through you. I want to close with an illustration um, that I found that talked about confession because it really spoke to me right off the top. 
It's called The Small Child Teaches a Lesson on Confession of Sin. It goes like this. Every year at our Ash Wednesday, service people have an, service people have an opportunity to write their sins on a piece of paper, fold the paper, and then pin it onto a wooden cross as a reminder of Christ's forgiveness. One year, a family came to our service, and they walked through the worship experience as an entire family. When they came to the confession station, they explained to their six-year-old son the practice of confessing their sin and writing it on a piece of paper. So when they all grabbed a sheet of paper and started writing their confessions, the six-year-old did the same thing. Remember, he's six. So he started writing with large, clear block letters. And the rest of his family wrote their confession, and then they carefully folded the sheets so no one could see the sins they had written down. They intentionally left their names off the paper as well. And then they walked up to the front of the church to the cross, and they pinned their sins on the cross. The six-year-old wrote this. He said, God... I'm sorry because I lie. But then he signed his name and he refused to fold it. He walked to the front and he pinned it to the cross. And his parents asked, why did you put your name on it? Don't you want to fold it up so no one can see? And then he said this, listen carefully. I wrote my name on it because I want everyone to see it. Because if they know it was me, maybe they can help me stop. And if we could get a hold of that as a church, I think God could do amazing things. I think it could be a breakthrough for you. I'm going to ask some of the worship team to come up and I've asked them to sing part of the last song they did earlier. And while we're singing, I'd love for you to spend a moment or two, not to rush, I know it's late, spend a moment or two Asking God to show you what's in your heart that's making you sick. It's okay not to sing. It's okay not to sing. You can sing along for sure, but if you just need to spend some time, you do that. What secret of the soul is God asking you to share with a trusted friend so you can be healed? Ask him to show you who those trusted friends are that will partner with you. Ask him to prepare your heart to be ready to be someone's support and accountability because that's an important part too. Not only do you have to ask, you might have to be asked to receive that. Partner with somebody. Ask him to help you carve out time in your week to be part of a group of people seeking after God together, aside from Sunday morning. Thanks for listening online with us. We trust you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. If you have a prayer request or an encouraging story about what God has been doing in your life, please email us at amen at wcmc.ca. God bless.